I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, I want to dedicate this class in a refu- for a refuah shalema for Bluma Rissel Basara, Fega Chana Bas Devora, Chana Bat Sheva Bas Yocheved, and all of those who need a refuah shalema. Rachel Bas Chenya. I have one live um, student here in the room, so <laughs> I'm just slowly easing into real people teaching, so she's here to see if I can do that. She's supposed to laugh at the right times and applause. So that I don't have to laugh at my own jokes constantly. So that'll be good. <clears throat> okay, if she doesn't laugh, I'll still laugh at my own jokes. So whatever. So um, just to begin the class, of course, we're all we're all busy mourning what happened in Miami. And of course, we know that it's not over. Um, the people are still waiting many, many people, but there's been so many things written about it in a lot of the Jewish magazines this week. Here's Mishpacha, a great magazine called Shadowed Lives. I have another one here, an Ami magazine, which obviously it was also on the front page, Miami Tragedy. So there's a lot being written about what's going on, but one of the things that came out that was just incredible is what a Kiddush Hashem it has been. Um, in the world at large, the outpouring of love and support and, and you know, materially the incredible amount that's been coming forth out of the Jewish people, but also just out of Jew and non-Jew alike in the world. There's this incredible um, outpouring that the, um, the uh, security guard at uh, Shul there in Val Harbor said he's never seen anything like it in his life. And, um, you know, he just, different people, different non-Jews are talking about how much they love the Jewish people and, you know, how often they hear people bad-mouthing us. And from now on, they're going to stand up because, you know, one, one non-Jew said, I love you guys. You're just incredible. And, you know, the rabbi who's across from Collins, on that street on Collins Avenue, the uh, Chabad rabbi who has a big shul there, Rabbi Lipsker basically gave over a message uh, of many messages. And one of the things that he asked, of course, which is a question we all have, is why did the Jews come together in such achtus, unfortunately, in such unity, unfortunately, only when there's some kind of horrific tragedy or we're being pressured from outside in some way. And he says, really, this should be a, a symbol to us that we can come together and we do come together. So wa- let's do it in normal times, he says. Let's try to get there in normal times because that's what's really preventing the Mashiach from coming. So we're doing our little part, ladies. We're, we're learning about Ahavas Chinam. And, you know, we're talking about how the second temple was destroyed because of sinas chinam, because of causeless hatred between one Jew and another. And the remedy and the antidote is to love one another for no good reason, right? To, as, as the title of this class is, learning to love ourselves and other imperfect people. And, um, you know, any little bit that we can do 
or grow just a tiny little drop, a baby step, has huge ramifications in heaven and, uh, and in the world around us. Because as we said, Risa knows we're all an olam katan. We're all a miniature of the entire world. We're a microcosm of what's going on around us. So when we change ourselves, which is the hardest work to do, we change the world around us. But, you know, people will prefer to look outside themselves because it's much easier to point fingers at everybody else. But we have to do the work. So just a quick review. We know that there's three circles of relationships in our lives. Circle one are the people we don't choose. They're the people Hashem puts in our inner circle, our relatives, our children, our, uh, you know, even our spouse, of course. We said we thought we chose him, but... uh, (sighs) Hashem has that all arranged too in one way or another. And, um, and those are the people that tend to be the most difficult people. And those are the people that we said we want to try and treat them as if they're our circle two. To take one difficult person in your circle one, right? And you want to give them the sense that, that they would be circle two. Who are circle two? Circle two are the people that you choose Circle two are the people that bring out the best in you. They're the ones who make you feel good. They're the ones who you enjoy being with, that you're at your best with. And as we said, you could imagine a circle one person seeing you interact with them and saying, why can't she be like that with me? Why is it that she's always so tense and uptight and doesn't seem to be flowing? Because we said, is a certain type of love that's free, that's flowing, that's not stopped up. That's one of, you know, that's one of the ways we like to think of as an image of avaschinam, like a water that's flowing freely and it's just coming out. There's nothing stopping it up. And then, of course, we have circle three people and circle three are the people that we just interact with casually, right? The people you meet on the streets, uh, the, the person who delivers your mail, the person who you, you know, interact with at the bank. And of course, some people are friendlier and some people are less. But we said, too, that part of Avas Chinam is becoming more expansive, bringing people in, even if they're in your circle three, to feel this, this closeness and love from you. I want to tell you a true story before we get into the uh, practicals of this. A true story written by, uh, told by Rabbi Yoel Gold, who is a storyteller and a Rebbe in Los Angeles. Um, and he tells a story about a woman named Rachel, uh, Phyllis Reese, a New Yorker who every single morning would travel, would take her car and travel to work at 8.35 a.m. And the neighborhood that she was going to was uh, not such a great neighborhood. And every single morning she would park her car in this parking lot underneath the tracks in exactly the same spot. And that spot always, um, there was always a um, homeless man who was always sitting right there next to her car every morning. Now, at first, when she saw him, she was a little bit nervous. He's a big guy. Often he was drunk. Some days he was less kempt. Some days he was more kempt. And, uh, you know, but she was, uh, she uh, believed in circle three and being friendly. And she would say good morning to him every morning. And in the evening at night, it was dark and she'd be walking back to her car and he would still be there. And every evening she would say to him, good night. And of course he would wave to her or he would say good morning and good night. 
Anyway, one day she's coming back from work late at night or dark. It was already dark. And she gets to the parking lot and she notices that the cars that are parked before her car are all smashed. The windows have been smashed. And obviously there have been some juvenile delinquents that have been doing this. Anyway, of course, she's got this lump in her heart thinking, oh my gosh, I hope they didn't get into my car. But she sees one car after the other is smashed. Anyway, she gets to her car and her car is totally intact. And the homeless guy is sitting next to her car where he always is. And he said, he gives her a big smile and he says, nope, they didn't touch your car because I said to them, uh-uh, you're not going to touch that car. You leave that car alone. And she said that she looked ahead of her car and every car after her car was smashed up with the windows broken and broken into. So, you know, here's a dramatic story about how we never know how being friendly to somebody, not only in circle three, but somebody who we would normally just look away from, as I'm sure he was used to being looked away from, right? But how somebody could actually save you in some way, you know? And so that's just a little bit on circle three. But back to circle one, which is we know that the hardest group, we were talking about what Sarah Hannah Radcliffe teaches, which is um, unconditional positive feedback. We said that as much as it's important to give feedback based on uh, performance, you know, way to go, you made your bed, way to go, you did this. Oh, I'm so happy that you, uh, you know, dovened this morning to give a, a feedback that's connected to an action what Sarah Hanarakov says is what really builds self-esteem even more than that is just saying, I'm so lucky you're my kid. Just going up and giving somebody a hug and saying, I'm so grateful that you're in my life. You're such a great person. I, you know, I feel so good when I'm around you. And when we say those kind of unconditional, positive, not connected to any deed, not connected to anything the person did, that research shows builds self-esteem more than anything else. And just to continue with that point, there's a Hinoch Banim expert in Israel. She wrote a book called Happiness is Homemade. Her name is Rachel Arbus. And she talks about an idea of solicited and unsolicited giving. So solicited giving is when someone asks you to do something for them and you do it. Unsolicited is when you just give them something without being asked. So as though, although many of us are past the toddler and young children stage, we all know that, you know, children are the best example of this when you go into a store and they see everything and they want everything and they're saying, give me this, give me that, I want this, I want that. And then they, you know, badger you or they take a tantrum and sometimes eventually you give in, okay? And so she says that a kid like this, who let's say is very needy, and is always wanting stuff. When they look around their room at their toys and all of the different things they owe, they own, they can kind of point to each thing and say, oh yeah, that's the toy I got when I had a tantrum at the store and my mother was so embarrassed, she bought it for me. Oh yeah, that's the thing I got when I nudged her and, and bothered her about it for months and months and I finally, she finally gave in and got me the electric scooter, right? Because everybody else has one and you know, blah, 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 right? 
So she says, she says, this kid looks around his room and everything in, in his room is because he had some kind of meltdown to get it or, you know, was pestered. So what this Hinoch expert teaches is these kind of kids, believe it or not, and it's paradoxical, thrive on being given something without having, been, having had to ask for it. So she said, even though this is a kid you don't necessarily want to give to, paradoxically, if, if you leave a little chocolate on their pillow before they go to bed at night or whatever, you know, before they brush their teeth, um, or you do something that's unsolicited, it can actually quiet down that voice inside of them that's always saying, give me, give me, I need, I need, I need. Now, of course, if it's really something that's psychologically deep, that's not going to do it. But I did check this out with Sarah Hunter Radcliffe. She agrees with this idea too. And she said definitely that if a kid is needy or they're always feeling like there's this hole and they're always asking for stuff, when you circumvent that by just giving them something without any strings attached, again, just because, and it could be something small, then sometimes that helps them quiet down that hole inside of them. Um, and it can be true not only with children, but even with people in our circle two, our circle one, adults. You know, you, uh, you do the act before they ask, you know, the friend that's always calling you to go out and you call them first or the lady that calls you every Arab Shabbos, right? Because she's lonely and she wants to talk to somebody and you decide you're going to call her before she calls you, Right. So when you sort of jump in first and give to the person who's needy, who's otherwise going to be soliciting from you, and you do it in an unsolicited way, that's a beautiful way to jumpstart your avashina. Just another tactic, another technique, especially with the circle one person. You know, I mentioned like, you know, using the heavier plate to serve my husband's breakfast because he likes that plate, you know? So it takes a little more effort. And instead of saying, no, I, I really like that plate, you know, doing it before, doing the thing before that you know they'd like so that it's unsolicited. And therefore it's coming from, again, a place where we're trying to practice pure love, free love, love that's flowing, we're exercising that muscle. And it doesn't mean it's going to feel so good at the beginning, and we're not going to rust and fret and, you know, whatever. But, but it feels, it's a muscle that as we flex it, we get better and better and better at it, okay? And this is, um, and also, you know, just infusing your words with love, not just your actions and your giving, but even saying, you know, here, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm giving you this because I love you. Now, you know, sometimes we think, oh, the person must know this, but we talked about the fact that we can be giving and we can even be loving the person while we're giving them, but somehow they're not receiving it. Somehow it's short-circuited and they don't feel the love. So we talked about the idea that sometimes when you're giving, the reason it's not well-received is because sometimes your giving is not coming from a place of pure purity, of pure love. You know, sometimes it's coming from a little bit of, with a little bit of resentment mixed in. It's coming with some, you know, you feel guilty, so you're giving. You feel pity, so you're giving to the other person. Sometimes it's coming from obligation or fear. And then we sit back and we wonder, like, why does the other person appreciate what I'm doing? Why aren't they 
Why isn't there this free-flowing love between us? And we can fool ourselves into not really understanding that our love is coming with a, an admixture of other stuff, of other emotions. And the other person picks up on it, you know, very easily, where we might be completely, you know, in the dark about the fact that we're doing this. But the truth is, is we all know, if we tune into our own psyche, and we tune into our own asking our own question, you know, how am I giving this? How would I like to be giving it? We know ourselves when it's infused with things other than just pure love. And we said something else last week that was interesting is to practice with small acts, right? Just pouring a person a glass of water, we said, can be infused with more pure love than sometimes doing some, you know, big act, something where you're really going out on a limb for the person, because the bigger the act, the more you're going to put yourself into it. Like, you know, I hope they appreciate this, or maybe there's some resentment, or do you understand how much I did to do this for you? Like, you know, I should be getting a bigger thank you than just, you know, thank you, you know, whatever, right? So we have to be careful that the way we're giving is a way that the person's going to receive. So I mentioned this actually in the Tzniyas class, and it comes up here too, that there's actually a Gemara that says when you give a present to someone, you, the question is, do you have to let them know? In other words, isn't it better to do things anonymously? Isn't it better to just give without any expectation of wanting back? And isn't doing it anonymously the greatest way to, you know, make sure you're not doing something to get back? So when it comes to tzedakah, we know that there are different levels of giving. The highest level of giving tzedakah is actually to give somebody a job, right? To put them back on their feet, to let them be able to have the dignity to make a living. But the second highest giving is anonymous, is to remain anonymous. But when it comes to our giving other people, and the other person just isn't receiving what we're doing for them, okay? The Gemara actually says that you should let them know that you just did something for them because you love them. Something that they might not have noticed. Uh, Dina Schoonmaker tells a cute story that when she was newly married, she walked into her husband's study and he had a book there written by Ravolda, the master of Musser, for new husbands and little tips on how to behave as a new husband. And what he was saying in there is that when little, husbands are little boys, you know, they don't normally wake up in the morning and their mother's lifting the blinds and they say, oh, wow, mom, thanks so much for lifting the blinds for me and waking me up. Or they don't say, you know, um, you know, if, if their mother made a really difficult dinner, a real gourmet dinner. They don't necessarily say as young boys, wow, you worked really hard, et cetera, et cetera. But what, but, um, you know, or you bought their favorite dessert and you went far away. They might not say anything, but what he was saying in this book is that a husband needs to learn how to say these things all the time to his wife to show appreciation. Wow. You made new curtains. Wow. They're really beautiful. I really like them, you know, to make a, a big deal about the efforts that she expends because as women, we know we do a lot and all we need is a little bit of appreciation. And that fuels us 
to want to do more and more and more. That's the, you know, that's the wind beneath our sails. So this is what, um, what she was reading. And um, Rav Shimon Ben Gamliel in the Gemara says, you should let someone know you did something for them. Now, this sounds like counterintuitive because it sounds like, well, why do you have to tell people? Isn't it better to just do it anonymously or do it without appreciation or do it just lishma, right? Just Hashem knows, right? Back to our he's your only audience. He knows what you did. So why do you have to get uh, kudos from everybody else around you, right? It sounds like you're fishing for a compliment if you say, you know, did you notice what I did? Did you notice the expense I went to or the time that I went to? So this is a tricky thing because you can't say this with any kind of negative tone or resentment in your voice. What you're trying to get across is how much love is invested in what you've done for them. Okay, so again, if it's coming from negative or resentment, that's not what the Gemara is trying to say. And back to that um, Example that I gave in the Tznias class, this is the example from the Gemara. It says, if you give a piece of bread to a child, you have to inform his mother. Now, they're not talking there about allergies, you know, like, you know, you told the mother, oops, I gave him a peanut butter sandwich. I hope that's okay. No, there's a, a deeper reason. Rashi says, why are you doing this? So listen to this, what it says in the Gemara. It sounds really weird, but we, it says, Rashi says, if you're feeding this child before his mother arrives, you should put a sign on him. Okay? And the mother will ask the child, right? It's like, you remember your kids when they came home from school and like, they have this like pit, they have like this piece of paper pinned on them. You know, the preschool teacher stuck this, the homework, you know, and they, they come home and they've got this piece of paper hanging off them, maybe three, you know, whatever. And you're like, oh, okay, I see what I have to do here. We've got some homework, whatever. <laughs> Let me take a look at the newsletter, right? They really don't want that kid to lose it. So that's what it reminds me of. So it says, you know, make sure you put a sign on him because then the mother, when she picks him up or comes to get him, she's going to ask him, who put that sign on you? And the kid's going to say, oh, Mrs. Cohen did it. And by the way, mom, she already fed me a sandwich, right? She already gave me some food. She already gave me some food. So the, the Gemara is saying that the mother should know that she was, that this child of hers was fed by you. And Rashi says, why this effort? And Rashi says, if they know you fed their child, they will know that you love them. And love and friendship will increase among B'nai Israel. So if we do someone a favor, even though it seems unnatural to tell them, you know, by the way, I drove your kid home from school. By the way, I fed your kid dinner tonight. By the way, right? The idea is, Rashi says, it's supposed to increase love. Now, of course, it will only increase love if you're not saying it in a way of showing off or, hey, look what a tzedekist I am, you know, or, you know, um, just so you know, next time my kid's hungry, I hope you're going to be feeding him, right? But rather, it just the, again, we're working on avas chinam, just the pure love of taking care of another, another person's kid. In a different class, oh, I don't know which one, you know, Dina Schoonmaker gave the example of, let's say, a kid who's away in Israel for a year off, you know, he's at Hebrew U or a girl who's in seminary and they get invited to someone's house for Shabbos and they get invited over and over again to this person's house. Now you don't even know who this family is, 
But of course, you feel so good that your kid, who's way far away from home, has found this family that's literally treating them like their own, right? Taking them in, taking care of them. So she says, so call the homer, or so to speak, how does God feel when you take care of one of his kids? Or you overlook one of his kids' faults and instead decide to let your love flow towards them, right? You focus on that person's virtues and you're able to rise above whatever flaws prevent you from loving. Or that is, that is the nachas that Hashem gets, like we would get with that family who took care of our kid when they're abroad, of, ah, oh, thank you for taking care of my kid, right? Thank you for loving my creations. And so we can think about that when we're showing love. And, and again, sometimes because the other person's not experiencing that what we're doing is a loving act, sometimes we actually have to spell it out for them in order for them to be able to receive it. Okay? And again, it's got to come from the right place. You have to be smart about it. You don't want them to feel you're searching for a compliment. But rather, I wanted to do this for you because I wanted to make you happy. I wanted to go to that distant store. And, you know, you're trying to let them know in a nice way. Robinson Vitzel Kamanovich, who was actually my teacher at uh, IAT many moons ago, an incredible person. She said, you know, people get used to a certain standard. They get used to whatever we do as mothers or as friends even. Of This is what I expect. This is the way it's supposed to be. And she says that, you know, husbands expect a, a clean home. A kid expects a hot meal for dinner, right? And we have certain standards that we are consistent about. But she said, but sometimes it's important, you know, that, you know, almost to let the standards drop a little bit. Or sometimes they do naturally, right? After a mother has a baby or something. Sorry, tonight we're just having cereal and milk. You know, I remember when my father used to go on way on, away on business trips or whatever, dinner was cereal. I mean, we loved it. Dinner was cereal and milk, you know, and maybe a few bagels thrown in. But um, the idea is, is that when you lower the standard a little bit, you can point out um, that, you know, it's, it, it makes them see what, how much you do for them. And she says, even a given, even a standard that we've gotten used to is an act of nurturance. So she says, you could say to your husband, you know, you have no idea what this floor looked like a half hour before you came in. And we say it in a nice way. Because what we want to say is, I cleaned it up for you because I wanted you to come home to a clean house. Now, again, Dina Schoomaker says you have to use this sparingly, right? You're not going to walk around telling everybody what you've done for them from morning, noon, and night. Um, but you're doing it, again, to remove an obstacle that's, there's some kind of obstacle in the communication of love. People don't always know, so we tactfully let them know what we do for them. We're trying to facilitate their feeling of being loved and nurtured. So she gives an example again. We're having this special dinner tonight because it's Moishi's favorite. Okay? We're going to this park today because Sarah loves this park. So you kind of announce this to everybody, right? We infuse whatever we're doing with love, and we say it. So that people receive it. Okay. 
So what the homework is for this part of the class is to look for unsolicited giving. Doing something for somebody proactively and somebody who tends to be more needy, maybe somebody in your circle one, it could be your spouse, it could be your kid, it could be a relative, surprising them by doing something before they ask for it and saying, I, I, I just love you so much. It's not because of what you did. It's not because of pity or guilt, right? Or fear or obligation. It's just because. And there is an idea that the more you do that with that needy person, the less needy they become and the less they start asking for things. Okay, we're going to move on to the next, uh, what time is it? Audience? 11 o'clock. Okay, so we have some time. I have one audience here. It's like those Canadian game shows in the 50s, you know, you can hear every clap, you know, like, okay. Okay, there we go. There's a the clap. All right. So I'm sure many of you for, are familiar with this famous book called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And so we're going to take a look at this book and just the main nuggets that we can learn from it. Because again, we're talking about when we love another person and we're giving, sometimes for some reason there seems to be a short circuit and our giving is not being received and therefore it's not coming back to us. We don't feel there's this flow of giving and return, right? Natan, Natan is a palindrome, right? You give and there's supposed to be some kind of return. Now, again, remember, we said there are certain difficult people in circle one that you can give and give and give to, and you will never get a thank you. It will never be good enough. You never did it right. And we said that Hashem watches that, and he gives you scar for that. But that doesn't come under the category of Ahavas Hinam. Ahavas Hinam is for ourselves. We want to become good at giving to the people who are you know, normal, right? Who are hopefully able to accept our giving. We want us ourselves not to be blocked up, whether it's circle one, circle two, or circle three, to be able to be expansive, to give. Because we, as we said, Rav Dessler says, giving leads to loving, not the opposite. People think, oh, I love you, so I'm going to give to you. But Rav Dessler is basically telling us, you can love anybody. Because it starts with you. Giving leads to loving. And again, we said, why? Because you actually see yourself in the person that you've given to. You've expanded yourself. And now that person, that stranger, that, you know, person that you didn't give to becomes a part of you. You see yourself in the giving. So we all know we love ourselves. And when we see ourselves in another person, it increases our love for them. Okay, so the five love languages basically talk about if two people are trying to um, give over this feeling of love, but they're speaking different languages. You know, if you speak Chinese and I speak Yiddish to you, you're not going to get it. So you have to understand the language of the person that you're um, attempting to communicate with, communicate love to. And there's a lot of miscommunication between people, especially in close relationships and circle one relationships. People feel a, a lack of fulfillment. They don't feel nurtured. 
and they don't feel like the other person understands them. So what this Gary Chapman teaches is that every person has a predominant love language, okay? Usually one or two. And of course, you know, all of them can be relevant, but there's usually one or two that stand out with each person. And a lot of it has to depend, depends on how they were given love as a child, what their natural love language is, and how they give out love. And we'll see what they are. Okay, so we have to use a certain language when we're giving. So the first one, and this is one that women seem to like a lot, are words of affirmation. Okay, those are people who feel most loved when you give them a compliment. Wow, mom, great dinner. Wow, mom, thanks so much for picking up my dirty laundry and putting it in the wash. Right? That's the wind beneath our sails. We just want to do more when we hear appreciation and love like that. So when you give them a compliment or describe what is special about someone, that's words of affirmation. The second one is called quality time. You make another person feel loved by shutting off your phone, right? By putting away all your gadgets. I mean, this is the way it is today. And you focus completely on them. This makes them feel the most loved. And who doesn't like that, right? But we're talking again here about predominance. What is their major love language of these five? So somebody who you just say, I have all the time in the world for you. Let's talk, right? Number three, gifts. These are people who need a tangible way of perceiving your love. They need the flowers. They need the jewelry. When they get those tokens of gifts, they feel this person really loves me. The fourth one is physical touch. Physical touch is their main love language. This, that's what makes them feel loved more than anything else. A hug, a kiss. And the fifth one is called acts of service. So somebody who washes the dishes for you, you know, the Eastern European mother who gets up at three in the morning to iron your underwear, right? These are acts of service. And the person is basically motivated by what kind of service can I do for this person that will express how much I love them? So this is a person who, when people do things, they feel loved unsolicited, right? They might do it unsolicited. So what happens in many relationships, whether it's marriage relationships or other, is we marry somebody that has a different love language than we do. And why do we do this? Well, because Hashem likes to make life tough for us. <laughs> because number one, we know opposites attract. According to the Imago theory is we are marrying somebody who is sort of going to unfreeze our frozen potential. And they do this by being very different than us and making us have to stretch ourselves in those frozen areas that we would never thaw out if we weren't forced to, to become, you know, more of who we could be. So generally speaking, people have a different love language than, than ours. And spiritually seek, seeking, speaking, the reason we want to learn their love language is because we want to stretch ourselves. When you marry someone who's exactly the same as you, it's not really that challenging. 
But someone who has a different love language than you, it's going to be more of a challenge because you need to learn their love language, even though it's not natural to you, even though it's not something that you, that, that, that is your, your predominant language. It doesn't, it's not what's going to make you feel loved. So this requires you to be aware of the person you would like to give to. What is their love language? If you really want to communicate love to someone in a really potent way, you have to learn what their language of love is. You know, for example, you could have a person that says, I want gifts, but this person only does acts of service. Now, you could say to yourself, you know, these acts of service that this person's doing for me means they're trying to show me how much they love me. So one way that we can work on being good receivers is recognizing that that important person in our life, even though they're not giving to us in our language of love, we can recognize that their language of love is to do acts of service, right? And say to yourself, hmm, when they do that, when they empty the dishwasher, right, or they, you know, make the bed, or they do something that I don't do, that's their love, and, and allow it to come through, even though that's not your predominant way of receiving love. That's not your number one. You like gifts, right? You like gifts. They like to do, say, you know, can I take the dry cleaners? Can I pick it up? It's like, yeah, but I really would like some jewelry or like flowers if you really want to know, you know, but you have to, number one, recognize that, that and allow the love to come through in the way that they speak the language of love, okay? You could even play a game around the table with your kids and your family, right, or those people in your life. Like, of these five, which one would you say without thinking too hard which is your love language? You know, which is the one that really makes you feel loved? So, of course, it's easier if we give to people in our own love language, right? I love gifts. I'm going to give you gifts. I love words of affirmation. So that's what I do for you. It's much easier when we use our own. But chinam, ahavas chinam, free love means I want you to be able to receive my love. I'm concerned about your being able to receive it. I'm willing to learn your language in order to make you feel good. So the circle one person, think about that circle one person who you've all been working on. Remember, we had that great victory with somebody in the class who called their, one of their peripheral circle one people after 40 years and bridge the gap between them. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that extreme. But somebody in your circle one, that's not so easy, and that you're working to have avas chinam towards. So what is their love language? Is this a, a words person? Is this a quality time person? Is this a gifts person, a touch person? Or is this somebody who appreciates acts of service? If I can pick up cues from them, then I can do more for them in their language. Now, some parents have a very different love language than their children. And sometimes it's generational. You know, it has to do with the way that we were raised. You know, if there wasn't a lot of physical touch, 
that might not be an important love language to us. If we grew up in, you know, what people call a, uh, you know, I guess it's a bit of stereotyping, but a more European type of background, they weren't necessarily so free with their compliments or I love you just because, or sometimes that was missing. And the way that they showed their love was not through words and not through touch, but through acts of service, right? So it's very natural for you in a relationship to do the same. Or it could be the opposite. Because you didn't have that other kind of love language, you really need that. And you need somebody else to recognize that and do that for you because that was missing in your in your in the way that you received your love. And, you know, there are kids that say, my mother never said she loved me. My father never said he loved me, but I knew they loved me. I never got a hug or just a compliment for no good reason. But I knew that my mother or my father loved me because they always said, do you have enough money, right? Okay, you need some money? Here, take some money, right? Whatever it was, whatever the Jewish way of giving is or can be, right? You know that that's their way of loving you. And that's the best that they can do. So sometimes, again, acts of service can go unappreciated because it's not your language. And it's only, it wasn't your language even as a child. And it's only later when we grow up that we realize that that's how my parents was communicating love. It wasn't, it wasn't the way I saw, you know, in my third generation Canadian family or whatever in some other home where they were very touchy feely and, and telling each other they love each other all the time, you know, or not getting off the phone with, without saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. Right. And somebody else who doesn't grow up in that kind of home, it's like, wow, you know, we never say that ever <laughs> just like that. So All of the love languages are important, and we can see ourselves in every single one of them. But there's certain ones that either we missed and are very important to us, and sometimes we just need to tell the person in our life, you know what? I love when you do these acts of service. I know that you're doing them because you love me, but I really, you know what really resonates with me? You know what really makes me feel loved? I would love it if you, you know, bought flowers for Shabbos for me, or you, you know, gave me a hug a little bit more often just because. Or you said, you look great. I love what you're wearing. Every day. <laughs> Even if I'm not looking good, just say it, right? So we have to tell people sometimes they don't speak our language. And we have to let them know this is really going to go a long way. And... Um, it's very important. And again, it's important for us to say to ourselves about this circle one person, what is their love language? Or ask them, you know, which one of these is yours and how can I do that for you more? So Dina Schoonmaker gives a cute example. She said that, you know, that her husband, when they got married, he grew up with a stay-at-home mother. And because he had a stay-at-home mother, everything was done beautifully. She also was just the type of person who liked to do things beautifully, right? When she put things out on the table, it would always be, uh, you know, also beautiful to look at. And, you know, the salad would always be cut up a certain way and chopped a certain way and this or that. 
And she said that, you know, for him, a finely cut salad, salad or a beautifully laid out plate was his love language. That's what he was used to. Now, she said she grew up in a home where both her parents were doctoral students, right? In the early years of their marriage, they were so busy studying that they were so busy, they had no time for a finely cut salad. And that takes a lot of work to cut up. And she said to me, a cucumber is the same whether you chop it up fine or you eat it whole, okay? Like it had no, nothing to do with love, okay? And she said for her, words were the language of love. But for her husband, she saw that these acts of service, right? The finely cut salad, the presentation of the food. This was his, you know, language of love. So, you know, even the way you cut a salad, when I cut a salad like you like, when I use the plate that you like, right? I'm communicating love to you because that's your love language. Okay, so we talked about the idea that, you know, we expect other people to know, we expect other people to, uh, come on, don't you get it yet? Don't you get what my love language is? But again, people are not mind readers, especially not men, if we're talking about men in this uh, scenario. We have to nicely, without resentment, without, you know, guilt and all the other stuff that can get in the way, we're allowed to express ourselves in two ways. We said the first one was saying, I did this for you because I love you. Whatever it is, I cleaned up the room before you came home. I made your favorite dinner. I went that extra mile. But we're not saying it because we want them to say, what are you, fishing for a compliment? <laughs> what? What do you want me to say? But we, we're trying to get the message across, like Rashi says, to increase love. To say, because I love you, that's why I did it. And for that alone, I went that extra mile. I made that extra effort. Because people, again, they get used to what we do. And they don't realize that when we don't do it, it's like, hey, what's going on around here? You know, like, where's my dinner? What happened to this? What happened to that? Well, you know, wake up. Just because it's there all the time doesn't mean I don't need you to tell me, right? And but to be able to give it over in a good way. And the second thing we're saying in this class and is our homework is to think about what the love language is of that person in our circle one that we might find difficult. It could be a relative. It could be a mother-in-law. It could be your own parents, right? How can we jumpstart by either giving to them before they ask for it and communicating love to them like that? And maybe even making them less needy when we do that because we're filling that hole that is there, perhaps psychologically speaking, in, in, because of a certain developmental stage that was missing in their childhood. Maybe, you know, you were busy with another kid. Maybe you were had a special needs kid in the family and you weren't giving them what they needed. And they always have this hole and you can perhaps fill it up by doing unsolicited acts of giving. And we said again that knowing that person's love language and knowing your own love language and communicating that to the person, you know, this is what really makes me feel loved. There's nothing wrong with doing that because, again, this is about Ahavashina. It's about 
wanting to let our love be received in a way that the other person receives it best, speaking in their language, right? Recognizing that whatever they're doing right now is their way of, of giving you their love. And perhaps you're not receiving it because it's not your love language, right? But recognizing, hey, when they do this, you know, when they uh, walk by and give me a hug, even though they don't send me flowers and they don't do this, that's their way of saying, I love you, right? Even though I'm not that, not, I'm not, I don't need that. I need you to put down your phone and pay attention to me. That's what makes me feel loved. I need you to be able to say, you know, once a week or whatever, let's go for a walk. Let's do something together without anything in the way. That's what I need to feel loved. And you can play this game with the person who's in your circle one. If you have a relationship like that where you can talk openly about it. Okay, so just to end our class today, we're talking about the idea of nurturing someone in their language, okay? Recognizing what that person's language of love is and trying to stretch yourself and expand yourself and doing the things that don't come naturally to you because you want to um, express love that they can receive in their language. Now, again, most of us have all these five languages of love, but sometimes there can be an imbalance. In other words, you can have one or two and not need the other ones at all. And that can be the same for the person that you're giving to. So the last thing I want to talk about is, um, and we're going to continue with this idea next week, is we are talking about surmeira, that before you can do good, you have to turn away from what's blocking you. Before you can give with this purity of love, this avas chinam, you have to look at what blocks it, not only in terms of leaving you, but being received from the other person. When you're not experiencing avas chinam towards someone, then something is blocking you. Now, if you can't figure out what that is, then it's fair to say that sometimes it's just a lack of chemistry. Okay? It has nothing to do with the other person. It has nothing to do with you. You're a different letter of the alphabet. You know, you just have a totally different homer than they do. You know, you're very options open. They're very options closed. You're very generous. They're more careful with every penny. There's just, it's just, there's certain chemistry that just isn't easy. Sometimes there's certain personality traits that make it really hard for me to be free flowing with them. Maybe they have a certain fault or they're, they're just negative, right? Or it's just stressful to be around them. And we want to try and remove that. So there's an idea that the obstacle, whatever trait you're having a difficult time with, the Gemara actually says anybody who criticizes or negates someone else has something negative within himself. And he's actually seeing his own faults. That that person who he really just doesn't like or really bothers him, sometimes the reason is, is because they are 
mirroring back to you some kind of fault or weakness that you have that you don't particularly like in yourself, right? We once said that sometimes the most difficult child is the one who's the most like you, right? Sometimes, you know, the biggest tikkun is the tinok, same letters, right? Who drives you the craziest because they know where to push your buttons, because they know you, because they are you. <laughs> they, 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 you know, have figured that out. So the Gemara is saying, could it be the thing that bothers you most about this person is that they're too similar to you? You know, that person never shuts up. Why don't they stop talking? Well, hmm, check yourself, you know. Maybe I need to be quiet more often. Or that person always has to be in the limelight. Or whatever it is. Or that person just gets angry and upset, like, all the time. They're so sensitive. So we're going to talk about, you know, this idea of check your own slip. You know, when you see somebody slip, sl st sticking out of their dress, right? And you you turn away, you know, you say, oh, that's so embarrassing. I can't believe their slip is slipping. I should go over and tell them. But you know what? Right after we see someone and their slip is showing, what do we do? We check our own slip, right? You see somebody who's dressed to the nines and her zipper is undone at the back. So if you're nice, you're going to run over to the stranger and say, hey, your, your zipper is unzipped. But most human nature is we'll look, we'll turn away, we'll be totally embarrassed for them. And right away, we will check our own zipper, right? So the Gemara is saying, if you have some kind of negative thing going on with somebody else, and you don't know why, why you have it, you can't pinpoint it. The Gemara says, check your own slip. Take it back to yourself and say, what character fault, what defect do I have? Or even in English, we say, you know, when you point a finger at somebody else, three fingers are pointing back at you. Okay. So the idea is here, I don't like this in myself, and so I hate to see this in my kid. And this is what we call projection. I project my flaw onto somebody else. You know, we have that expression when you're a kid, takes one to know one. I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> you remember that one in the playground? <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of saying the same idea. I'm so familiar with this negative trait that it bothers me when I see it in somebody else. Sometimes the reason somebody else bothers us is because I'm very good at that thing that they're not good at at all, okay? It bothers me that this is something that comes so naturally to me. This is normal. This is the way people are supposed to be, right? This is easy. But guess what? For you, it's not easy. For the other person, it's not easy. It doesn't come naturally. It isn't a no-brainer. They're not wired like you. I'm such an organized person. Why are they so chaotic? So what we're learning here is sometimes when it comes to other people, and it could be people in our circle three, <clears throat> it could be people in our circle two, but it's most likely to be people in our circle one. You know, even with a good friend, sometimes they have certain character traits or certain things that come up again and again and again. And sometimes you have to say, I don't know, am I willing to keep going with this friendship? Or is this a circle two person who I can actually, you know, slowly disengage from because I want to choose different friends. I want to choose people who make me feel better, who are really 
bring out the best in me? Why should I waste time? I say life is short. You know, why waste time with people who make you not feel good? If those are the people you can actually choose. Mm -hmm. So homework for today, again, is take a level one person, a circle one person, and think about what their love language is and how you could better serve them and get your love through by giving them what they need, not what you think they need, because your natural way of giving is through a different love language, because that's the one you like. That's the one you favor. And then it's being open and honest with whoever it is and saying, you know, what's your love language? I want to be able to give it to you more of what really makes you happy, makes you feel loved. And guess what? This is what makes me feel loved. You know, this is what I would like more of if, if you, you know, and this has to be done obviously in a time when there's, uh, you know, mutual love and admiration going on or some kind of peace, you know, and uh, respect for one another. And the last thing is, again, that sometimes there are people who just bother us and we don't know why. And it can be chemistry and it can be personality differences. But often what it is, is either they're reflecting something that we don't like about ourselves and we see it in them and it really bugs us. Okay. Or sometimes it's a little bit of gaiva, the arrogance of like, why is this so hard for you? Like, this is so easy for me. Like, what's wrong with you? As opposed to saying, well, listen, just because it's easy for you doesn't mean it's, it's part of another person's home error. You know, they, they didn't get this trait when they were, you know, pushed into this world. <laughs> they didn't come with that. And for them, it's a real stretch to be able to do what you do naturally. Okay, ladies, we've got homework. Pick that circle one person. Try to make them into your circle two. Just that little, little tiny movement up, movement forward in whatever way, even just thinking about it this week. Thinking about how you can give before they ask. Thinking about, you know, your love language and theirs. It all counts up there in Shemayim. And it'll bring our world, the Ezra Tashem, to a place where Mashiach is able to come. Thanks for listening. Say it again. Amen. My audience says, Amen. Okay. Hope you enjoyed this class. To sponsor a future class or for a complimentary and completely confidential coaching session with me as I support you in reaching your goals and actualizing your true potential, please email me at DeborahVale at Yahoo.ca. That's Deborah, D-E-V-O-R-A-H, Vale, V-A-L-E, at Yahoo.ca. 